Revelation chapter 2 today. Last week we read the first letter to the church at Ephesus. Although they were commended for their patience and their hatred of evil, they had made a mistake. They had left their first love. They were going through the motions, working for the sake of doing good works. Let that never be said about us. That we do good works so that people can point out our good works. Because that's the wrong reason to do them. I don't do good things because I think that it's going to make people think differently of me. I do good things because that's what God calls me to do. I'm his representative. I'm supposed to be representing him. Have you ever acted towards someone in a rude way and thought, I'm justified in this because I don't like them. Um, And I don't think that they are as godly as they should be. You know, they don't act the way I expect them to act. They don't wear the clothes I expect them to wear. They don't sing the way I expect them to sing. They don't love the way I expect them to love. So you just basically disqualified yourself as a Christian because to be a Christian we're supposed to love the way Jesus loves not based on any other person we're supposed to treat everyone the same way that Jesus treats us because if you think that you qualify for the love of Jesus you'd be mistaken None of us qualify for that. It's only by the grace and mercy of God that he accepts us. He qualifies us because of what he has done, not because of who we are and what we have done. The Ephesians were doing things out of works. They were trying to get things done because they knew what was right and wrong. You know what? The world knows what's right and wrong. They just continue to do the wrong so often that they get accustomed to it. That they're okay with doing wrong. But we, as Christians, read the Word of God, hopefully. And in the Word of God, we're taught the difference between right and wrong from a godly perspective, not from man's perspective. And then we're able to discern right and wrong. We're able to discern truth and lies. Today we're going to read letters to the next two churches. We're going to cover two today, Smyrna and Pergamos. Today's message is titled, From Suffering to Compromise. We continue our study through the book of Revelation with chapter 2. We're going to pick it up in verse 8, where we read, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, 
These things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. So Jesus is the one writing this letter to this church of Smyrna. Of the seven cities mentioned in the letters that are written, this is the only one that still exists today, not under the name Smyrna, but under the name Izmir. The rest of them are all destroyed and gone. It was a city that was 35 miles north of Ephesus. It was also a coastal city in the Aegean Sea. It was a seaport with a a lot of wealth. They did a lot of trade there, and they had a lot of commerce, just like Ephesus did. Uh, There were temples built there to worship the pagan gods. They actually had a, a road built Uh, that had covered arches with these little porticos where each portico had a different god that you can go to worship there. And it was very pagan. The whole uh, environment was very pagan. But their primary focus of worship was Caesar, was Caesar worship. Tiberius Caesar uh, was uh, there. That They built a temple for him there in Smyrna. Notice the word Smyrna. Uh, it's the middle of it is Myr, Myrn, okay, and Myr is what they embalm people with. Okay, remember it was one of the gifts that were given to Mary and Joseph for Jesus when he was born. Myr was one of those gifts. And Jesus then points out that he's the first and the last who was dead and came to life. So Myrrh didn't keep him down. He wasn't there to stay dead. He was there to come back to life. This identifies his eternal character. That's important because he's identifying himself as God. And some people still say he never said he was God. He said he was God many times in the scriptures, and this is just one of them. You look at what he has done for us, and everything he has done for us is prophesied by God in the Old Testament through the scriptures, and he fulfilled those prophecies God originally made this statement in Isaiah 44, 6. He said, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. Beside me, there is no God. He identifies himself as the first and the last, and there is no other God. So when Jesus said, I am the first and the last. He was identifying himself as God. And so we can trust that what he's telling us is true. Do you know why? He's alive. He was giving John this information after the resurrection, proving 
that he was alive as he spoke to them. The church at Smyrna was known for their persecution that they suffered, and Jesus wants to show the church how he can relate to the trials that we go through. Um, Quite often we feel like we're the only ones that go through trials. We're the ones that that have these struggles in life, and, and it's us, where nobody else goes through what we go through. And that's not true. Uh, trials are common to everyone, whether they are saved or not, believers or not. You see, I just don't understand how an unbeliever can live in this world without the hope that we have beyond this world. They have no hope. You see, so if someone happens to run me over today when I don't get any ideas, when I leave the church today, if someone happens to run me over and I die, I don't care. I'm going to heaven. My wife may care, but I'm not going to be concerned about it. My first breath in heaven, my last breath here on earth is followed by my first breath in heaven. And, and so... What I'm not going to look back and say, hold on, you know, I had to go to Alabama on Tuesday, so now I'm going to miss it. Alabama, who wants to go to Alabama? (laughs) Anyway, I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not but are a synagogue of Satan. He just called Jews a synagogue of Satan. Wow. You know, that's, that's Jesus saying that. You know, a lot of times people say Paul's kind of over, overextended his words sometimes. No, it was the Holy Spirit. But here's Jesus saying they are a synagogue of Satan. He was aware of what the church was going through. He was aware of what Ephesus was going through, what Pergamos. He is aware of what Calvary Fountain Hills goes through. He's aware of everything and every believer. He knows what you're going through personally. When you think there's no one that can understand and relate to the issues in my own life, he knows. And I can't relate to what he went through. I just can't. Because even if everything that happened to him happened to me, I still couldn't relate to it. Because I'm deserving of it. I'm not a perfect being. I didn't create the world. I didn't create humanity. So I can't relate to him, even if I suffered the same things that he did. And when we consider it that way, we realize how much pain and sorrow and suffering he must have gone through to watch his own creation do what they did to him. He knows of tribulation because... He suffered just the same way that we do. He got hungry 
Remember, he was out in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, and he was hungry because he didn't eat during that time. He was thirsty when he was up on the cross, dying on the cross, and he said, I thirst. He experienced much of what we go through, especially, uh, you know, when we are struggling in our struggles, and we will never understand that. There are many different forms of persecution. Many of the Christian persecution take place in Islamic nations, in Muslim nations. They're even in the Hindu nations. There's a lot of persecution. In China, there's a lot of persecution against Christians. And we don't see that same kind of persecution here in the United States. That doesn't mean there isn't persecution. It just looks differently. It's, there are Christians that hate the gay agenda. There are Christians that hate the pro-choice groups that are out there you know, doing pro-choice movements and, and abortion supporters and so on and so, so forth. First of all, don't hate them because they're just being led by their daddy, Satan. He is the one that is directing them to live, believe, and do what they do. Just like the Jews that were called out for being a synagogue of Satan, you know, that's what's happening in our world today. There are many people that are misguided because they're led by demons. And there's uh, not much we can do about them except pray. So we don't hate LGBTQ people, you know, anyone that has, you know, um, supported abortion rights. That's not what we don't hate. We love them. And we need to love them. We need to demonstrate the love of Christ because he loves them. But there are Christians that are being imprisoned for not baking a cake for a gay couple and now a transgender person. Now, that, that guy got acquitted. He went all the way up to the Supreme Court of Colorado, got acquitted, and now a transgender person is filing lawsuits against him again because he won't do a transgender reveal. Uh, you know. And, you know, this is just craziness. You know, I, I, I am not going to go to, what's the name of that, that uh, cat rescue, Fearless Kitty, is that what it's called? So I'm not going to go to Fearless Kitty and say, I'd like to rescue a dog. You know, well, hold on, we're Fearless Kitty. I don't care. I, I want to rescue a dog. You know, well, go rescue a dog somewhere then, because that's not what we do here. You know, and I just think that people sometimes get so focused on everyone has to do things my way. And as Christians, we should never let that happen. So here in this wonderful 
city that was uh, having a lot of problems. Oh, by the way, they're also arresting people for praying at abortion clinics. Just for praying at them. Not blocking anyone, not even talking to anyone. Praying at the abortion clinic. There was a, a gentleman that was praying the rosary. He was Catholic at the abortion clinic. They came to his house, the feds came to his house. He, he was acquitted by the local court, but the feds picked it up and the FBI came to his house and arrested him in front of his children for praying in, at an abortion clinic. So persecution is here. It just hasn't become as widespread as it is in many other places. Two dozen people have had file, uh, charges filed against them from the federal government, by the way, uh, since Roe v. Wade was overturned. Uh, it's happening more and more often. The church at Smyrna was persecuted for their faith because both Jew and Gentile didn't like them and were opposed to their teaching. That's why the church was poor. If you have a church, a group of people back then, they worked together to sell their wares at the market so that they can make a living. And so if you belonged to a synagogue, those are the people that you were selling to. And, and then the Gentiles would also buy stuff from you at the market. But if you were a Christian, you weren't allowed to go to the market. You weren't allowed to sell anything at the market. So the only people you could sell to were other Christians and you couldn't sell to them because they couldn't sell. And so they were very poor at that point. All they can do is barter with each other and get by. And Jesus knew the blasphemy. Jesus knew that they were standing up for their faith regardless of what was going on around them. He was aware he called the Jews the synagogue of Satan. These are his chosen people, right? That doesn't mean he hated them, but the way they were acting was like the synagogue of Satan. And just like the Jews today in Israel, I don't support the Jews because they're perfect and they're wonderful. I know that they are just like everyone else. They're, they make mistakes, they do silly things, but they're, it's their nation. If you really look back at the history, you can see what's going on there in Israel. What you may not know is that Hamas came and attacked the kibbutzes that were right along the outside fence of Gaza. What you may not know is that those Jews that lived in those kibbutzes used to go in to Gaza on a regular basis, bring them food, and those that were sick and in need of doctors, they would take them and escort them into Israel and bring them to hospitals to see the doctors to get care in Israel for free. That's, those are the kibbutzes that Hamas went and attacked and killed 
and did what they did. I'm not going to speak about what they did, but what they did was horrific. It, it was worse than a slasher movie. And so that's how they acted towards the Jews. When you hear about the insurrections that happened up in the West Bank, where um, there were some Jews that went and attacked um, a, 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 an encampment up there that was an Arab encampment, uh, a, a, um, I, I don't remember if it was a mosque encampment. Anyway, they went there and they attacked. And, um, you know, so it was a big thing in the news. Everybody said, oh, the, these lousy occupying Jews and so on and so forth. Well, when Joel, Derek, and I were there and we were driving, we drove the whole West Bank, the driver told us, Oh, you don't know the story. You don't know what really happened. After that happened, the Jews from the surrounding area went into their uh, area, their living area, and helped them repair all of their houses and cleaned up all of the damage that was done. The Jews did that. They went and helped those people. They, they just want to live in peace. And, and so we look at these and we don't understand. We don't have a good picture of what goes on because we get it in the news. And how come one news station reports it this way, another reports it this way, and another reports it this way, and none of them get it right? It's sad. It's, it's all about the perspective of the news station rather than the truth coming out. So we need to pray for, there are many Christian Palestinians there that are still misguided. They think Israel should be killed also and that, that the land should be theirs. You know, there's a lot of stuff. There are Christians here in the United States that think Israel should give up all their land and give it to the Palestinians. By the way, there is no such thing as Palestinians. I know that may be a shock. And who is this pastor telling me this stupidity? No such thing as Palestinians. Palestinians were given a name, um, and that was how they were put in that place. Um, uh, they were living there, and uh, the ruler at the time decided that he was going to give, rename um, Israel and he named it Palestine because it was offensive to the Jews because Palestine represented the Palestinians uh, or the Philistines actually is who it represented. But the people living in the land were Jews. Like 90% of the people living in the land were Jews. I saw a picture of a um, bill from 1937. It was one Palestinian note. And, uh, you know, uh, for money, like a reserve note. And it was from 1937 and all the wording on the front of it was in Hebrew. There was no Arab note. There was no Arab money. It was all Hebrew. 
they, the Hebrews were Palestinians. So when they say free Palestine, it's like, no, they live there. What do you mean free them? They're there. The Jews were just as much Palestinians as the Arabs were. No, they were more Palestinians than the Arabs were. But, all right, I'm done with my rant. Jesus addresses uh, the idea of the prosperity gospel here in his parenthetical statement where he says, but you are rich. He said they were poor, but now he says, but you are rich. Jesus knows what it means to be poor. Jesus didn't have a mansion. Jesus didn't have, you know, a harem of, uh, of animals that carried him and he got on his chariot and went around. Jesus didn't have any of that. He was poor his whole life. People provided for him and ministered to him. When it comes to riches, um, he showed, you know what, this isn't me. That This isn't what I do. But he said, you are rich. They're rich in the spiritual things. They're not rich in the wealth of the world. But they were rich spiritually. And he's contrasting their spiritual riches against their financial poverty here. Spiritual riches are always more important than our economic wealth. And spiritual riches are the only ones that matter when you enter heaven. No one's going to say, do you bring your bank book? It's not going to happen. You, um, you go there based on your spiritual walk with the Lord. Jesus is now going to give the church of Smyrna some more bad news, but he follows it up with a promise in verse 10. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And you will have tribulation 10 days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Literally, uh, do not fear means stop being afraid. They were in fear. And he said, don't fear, stop being afraid. Fear is the normal response to persecution. It's normal for us to have that kind of fear. How would you like to be told by Jesus that you're going to be suffering even more than you already are? You're suffering so much you're afraid. And now you're going to suffer even more. That wouldn't make me happy. And being told the devil is about to throw you into prison for 10 days. Well, some people told me that I'd go get a second opinion. Um, But, you know, where are you going to go? To a a psychic? To some other religion? Where are you going to go to get that second opinion? Because any second opinion comes from the devil. The only opinion that matters is the one that comes from God. And so they didn't have a choice. They were going. I, if I was living there, I would say, eh, you know, Ephesus is looking pretty good. You know, anyone move down there? The ten days that were documented here are not literal days. When he says that ten days you're going to suffer, you're going to be thrown in prison, um, because there is no 
record of 10 days being assigned to persecution during that time. But the way it was written, it implied 10 seasons or 10 groups of time. And that's exactly what happened. There were 10 Caesars during that time, 10 rulers that lived during that time, after the time of Nero, from Vespasian on, they were evil towards Christians, and they wanted to kill Christians. And so there were 10 of them up until um, the time where Constantine uh, then declared he didn't, Constantine didn't declare Christianity the religion, the, the correct religion. He said, whatever religion I choose, that's the religion that everyone's going to worship. That's what he said. And then he picked Christianity as the one that everyone was going to, um, to worship in, as Christianity. It wasn't until... Theodius, Theodius, Theodius said Christianity is the religion of the Romans. He did that somewhere before 395 AD. And then he declared Christianity to be the Roman religion at that time. So the only warning that the church of Smyrna uh, was given was do not fear anything that you're about to suffer. That was their warning. So they didn't have anything really good or bad. It was the warning. You know, know, look, you're enduring persecution. They, They had that. And the trials were going to lead to the crown of life. Jesus confirms that in Matthew 10, 22, where he says, And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end will be saved. That's true for us today. That's still valid for every believer, not just for the Smyrnes, for for those from Smyrna. Now he closes the letter to Smyrna saying, He who has an ear, let him hear what the the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. And so Jesus is now not only speaking to just the church in Smyrna, look at what it says there in verse 11. Hear what the Spirit says to the churches, not to Smyrna, to the churches. So that's to all the churches, that's to us today. And he says, he who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Well, if you're born once, you die twice. You see, you're born in the flesh, you die in the flesh, and then you get judged and die spiritually because you weren't born twice. If you're born and then born again, you're born twice, and then you only die once in the flesh, and maybe not even that. If the rapture happens, right? And so then you don't have that judgment. And when we talk about the great white throne judgment, we talk about the judgment where people will be judged for the things that they did on the earth that send them to hell. 
But the Bema Seat judgment is the judgment that we're going to go through, but that's basically a reward ceremony. You go before the judge to receive your rewards, whatever they may be. And so I say, store up your rewards because we're not taking them with us when we get there. The rewards are stored in heaven for us. And when we get there, we're going to be rewarded by what's stored up there. We're going to be given crowns. And then we're going to be casting crowns. No, not the music group. We're going to be throwing those crowns at Jesus' feet because they're his anyway. He, he is the one that did all the work to make us qualify for having a crown in the first place. In Hebrews 9.27, we read, It is appointed unto man to die once, but after this, the judgment. That's it. We die once, and then we're judged. And so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time, apart from sin, for salvation. And so he's coming to save us all. Well, we're being saved right now. It's a process that we're going to sanctification. Very cool, huh? So now we're going to get to another major city. Um, this is uh, Smyrna, um, about, um, no, Pergamos. And it's an American church in that time. Because if you look at the American church today, they were doing, they're doing the same things as they were doing back then. He, he was calling out the church at Pergamos, but he might as well have said, I'm calling out the church in America for these things. Verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, these things he says, who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know your works, where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name, and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. And so that's, how would you like to be, you know, in the church where Satan dwells? It just is not very appealing you know, let's move. But this is a place where it's identified as that. And I don't understand. I can't give you details on what that looks like. But when we look at the world today, we can see some cities that are much worse than other cities. And we can say Satan's dwelling there. You know, just by seeing what's going on in some of these places, Satan is well. Even though we have pictures of that in the United States, and we see cities that are given over to sin, um, that's not where Satan's dwelling. He's over in the Middle East somewhere where he's, you know, remember, he's not um, omnipotent. And he isn't omnipresent. He can't be everywhere at once. He can only be in one place at a time. And so 
that is his central location where he works out of. But there are plenty of his demons that are out there causing trouble for the rest of us. It's kind of sad, isn't it? So, in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it says, For the word of the Lord is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and the spirit, and of joints and marrow. Soul and spirit are not physical things. Uh, Joints and marrow are. And so that's how this sharp, this sword cuts. And it's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. If you want to be afraid, now is a good time. Because the word of God is a discerner of your thoughts and of your heart. Jesus knows. God knows. Our thoughts and our heart. And there are days where you wish he didn't know. I know there are many days I wish that he didn't know. Oh Lord, please scratch that one. You know, this was not a good day. And then there are great days. I'm like, oh Lord, did you you see that Lord? I did something good. You know, it's, it's not how it works, but... The sword is the word of God. And filling ourselves with the word of God enables him to speak to us in a different way. Have you ever had people, oh, the Lord spoke to me. What did he say? And then they go on on a 20-minute discussion about how God spoke to them. You know, And when the Lord speaks to me, usually... It's exactly what the scripture says. You know? When the Lord speaks to me, it's in things like, Jesus wept. You know? And, and I'm like, oh, he saw my life today. He wept. Why did he weep when Lazarus was in the tomb and he knew he was going to raise him from the dead in a few minutes? Why did he weep? He wasn't weeping for Lazarus. He was weeping for everyone else. And there are times in my own life where I may act in such a way that I cause him to weep. Where he looks and says, man, I just, I I wish today were the day, Rick, that you would get this, but it's okay. I'm going to send you back through that trial again so you can learn Jesus mentions where Satan's throne is and Satan dwells. And even though there's a place like that, it's a stronghold, they weren't denying the name of Jesus. They were staying true to who Jesus was. They had faith in who Jesus was. We aren't sure who Antipas was, but he was a martyr. And Jesus points him out. He wasn't, who knows? Who knows who Antipas was? No one knows. So that tells us also that the martyrs aren't just these famous people. Polycarp, oh, he was such a martyr. And, and yeah, but there were millions of others being martyred. And so Antipas was just one of them. Probably he was a faithful example in the church. 
And he was martyred because of his faithfulness. Because he stayed true to the scriptures. And Jesus commends them for not denying his names. But now he's going to point out their deficiency in verse 14. Where he says, but I have a few things against you. A few, not one. I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam. Now, here's the wording is saying, you have people within the church that are doing this. So who's he writing to? He's writing to the church leadership. He's writing to the faithful in Christ. And he's saying, hey, you have people that are in the church that are doing this. They hold to the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus, you also have those who hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate, repent or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. And so that's pretty tragic. You know, that's pretty harsh, it appears. Remember the sword of his mouth. Remember how the battle of Armageddon is going to be won? The sword of his mouth. He's just going to speak and the battle's going to be over. And that's the word of God that's going to be coming from his mouth. In Numbers chapter 22 <clears throat> through 25, it records the story of Balaam and Balak. And Balak was a king who tried to hire Balaam, who was the sorcerer, to put a curse on Israel. He wanted a curse to be put on Israel. And so um, Balaam refused at first, but then... He said, oh, you're going to pay me? Okay, then I'll go ahead and, and do that. And he tried to put a curse on Israel. And when he did, God blessed them instead. And then he went back and tried again. And God blessed them even more. And Balak said, hey, didn't I tell you to curse them? He says, I, every time I try, God blesses them. I can't do this. And so then he goes back to Balak and says, hey, I, I figured it out. I know what to do. You got to get them to buy into you and your program of idol worship. So go ahead and marry them with your women. And that will be sexual immorality for them to be married to your women and that will cause idol worship, and they will now be um, sinning, sinning against their God. That's how you solve this problem. And it worked. 24,000 Jews died because of this curse or this plan that was put against uh, them. So... The church at Pergamos was not uh, faithful with those people, but with the rest of the church, they were faithful in not denying Christ. They were staying firm 
but they were getting involved also with idol worship and, and committing sexual immorality, this other group in the church, right? Do you remember when Paul and Barnabas, well, you, I know you don't remember, but do you remember studying about Paul and Barnabas? Some of you are old, but not that old. And, and Paul and Barnabas, they were there with the Gentile church, <clears throat> and they were um, hearing from the Jews that came from Jerusalem that they had to be circumcised, the Gentile church. And Paul and Barnabas said no. And he, they went to the apostle. The apostle said, you know, let's figure this out. James came up with the plan. No, they just have to not eat an animal with the blood in it and uh, not give in to sexual immorality. And hold on, it was the same thing that we're reading here that they were involved in. Eating things that were offered to idols and sexual immorality. The same two sins, and that's what was going on in the church. And so obviously they didn't learn the lesson. Paul was gone by this point. So when we compromise our faith to get along with the world, we lose our Christian testimony. We lose our integrity. In verse 15, there's a mention of another doctrine, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. They were known for following the doctrine of man rather than following the doctrine of God. And we have many churches today that they have their own doctrine that, are, that is anti-biblical that goes against what the scriptures say. I had a lot more to say about that, but I'm running out of time. So here's the fact. There are churches out there that think that their doctrine is more important than scripture. And they contradict scripture. And so that's who the Nicolaitans were. And that's who Jesus is calling out right here. You know, we don't want to fight against Jesus. He has his two-edged sword. I wouldn't want to fight against Jesus if he had a toothpick and a pillow, right? I, I'm going to lose. So, um, you know, once again, um, we have this urgent call that's issued by Jesus. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name, written which no one knows except him who receives it. Uh, the hidden manna, he is the bread of life. The hidden manna, it, we can eat of this. Your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. It is the hidden manna that helps us to live in this world and not be corrupted by the world. And he will give us that. He also is going to give everyone a stone. And it's only going to have a name that you're going to know. I, I hope that the name is something that I like. Right? My parents named me Ricky. You know, Ricky Ralph. They were watching too much I Love Lucy and the Honeymooners and stuff. So I want a, a better name. And he's going to come up with it. And only I'm going to know it. 
White stones were used in those days when people would go to court. If they received an acquittal, then they would get a white stone that showed that they were acquitted. And or if you were going to an invitation, if you received an invitation to a big event, um, you would receive a white stone with the invitation to that event with your name on it, so that you're invited. And so both of those are valid in this case. We're acquitted of all of our sin and we're invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Looking forward to both of those things. Here we, we've learned, uh, we, we can live in persecution, um, we can live in compromise, neither one is a good place, we're told, in, with these two churches. And we know that the only place that we should really be living is in the center of the will of God and in his presence. Amen?